Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our super special guest is the amazing April Dunford, an author and positioning expert who has recently published her book, Obviously Awesome. And no surprise, we're going to talk about product positioning today. This episode is brought to you by Gusto. Small businesses across the US love running payroll with Gusto. Why? Because Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, plus you can add benefits and management tools to help take care of your team. But here's the thing, it's almost 2020 and switching to a new payroll provider can be tricky. Gusto can help. Sign up today at gusto.com slash uibreakfast and get three months free when you run your first payroll. Hi, April. Hey, how are you doing? So good to be here. We're absolutely thrilled. And this is a wonderful opportunity in addition to your book to learn a bit about your story and what you do. Yeah. Before we get started, tell us a bit more about your background story. How did you arrive at the point of being a positioning expert? No, I certainly I certainly didn't start out with an intention of being a positioning expert. Let's put it that way. So my background is I went to school for engineering, but straight after graduation, I ended up working at a startup just out of luck. Basically, my friend worked at a startup, got me a job at a startup. The job was technical, but it, but it happened to be in the marketing department. That company was acquired. My boss left and I ended up getting promoted into the role of running the entire marketing department, which was kind of hilarious because I didn't know a thing about marketing. But I decided, you know, how hard can it be? I'll just figure it out. And uh, I learned a lot in that first job. And then when I finally decided to leave, I went to another startup and I came in as the head of marketing and we did pretty good. Uh, that company also got acquired. And then I decided this was my jam. Like, I, I'm just going to be the head of marketing and I'm going to do it at startups of a certain stage doing a certain thing. And so I did that for almost 25 years. So I was a senior executive, mainly the vice president of marketing, sometimes marketing and sales, sometimes operations, um, but mainly the head of marketing across seven different startups. And I think six of those were acquired. So I ended up doing senior marketing jobs at bigger companies as well. So after 25 years of that, I decided, you know, maybe it was time to do something different. And I transitioned out of being in a company full time to doing consulting. And I eventually settled on the idea of focusing on positioning, firstly, because in my job as a VP marketing, I had repositioned every product I had ever worked on, which I, I tallied them up and that was 16 different products that I worked on between the small companies and the big companies. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. And, and, and every time we went to do it, it was really, really hard because there was no methodology to actually go and do it, which I thought was insane. Like positioning is kind of this underpinning of everything we do in marketing and sales. And yet Nobody really knows how to do it. Everybody's kind of making it up as they go along. And so I thought that would be something that I could do as a deliverable, as a marketing consultant, it would be super valuable. And I thought, hey, I've repositioned 16 products. Who better to do it than me? So that's how I got here. <laughs> 
And you then you repositioned yourself to be a positioning expert. That's right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but yeah. Once I decided I was good enough at it, it took me a long time to, like, I had a methodology that I was using um, internally when I was a VP marketing to do positioning. And I thought, well, this is pretty good. I could teach it to other people. But when I started trying to teach it to people, uh, it, it turns out, you know, it's one thing to know something. It's another thing to try and teach it to someone else. And so I was pretty good at doing it, but I was pretty lousy at teaching it, it turned out. So then it took me a long time to take the methodology and break it down in a way that I could actually teach someone else. And so once I got good at that, I started doing workshops around that with with clients. So startups would hire me, I'd come in, we'd spend a couple of days, we'd work on positioning. And that got pretty good. Um, and then I decided, well, you know what, I, I could write this all down and have this in a book. And if you're the kind of company that, you know, you're never going to hire a consultant to do this because you either don't like consultants or you can't afford consulting or you're too far away from me for me to fly out and work with you, you could just buy the book and at least have a good crack at trying to figure it out yourself. So that's where the book came from. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom in such a format that like it's literally free and available to everyone. So any startup bootstrap and all. Well, I mean, it's not free, free. <laughs> like you can buy it on Amazon. Ebooks like seven bucks. But yeah, it's basically it's like I, I tell people it's like the cost of a beer. For the cost of a beer, you can you get access to everything that took me like twenty years to figure out. Yeah, we, we're grateful. The society invented this amazing <laughs> idea of books, you know. We can take advantage of it. <laughs> you mentioned that you're tired of answering the same questions, but I guess what is positioning is still something we have to cover in the beginning of today's episode, right? Yeah, you know, so it is funny that positioning, it's super important, it's super fundamental, but it is also extraordinarily misunderstood. So Whenever I talk to people about positioning, I, I, the first thing we have to do is level set on what are we actually talking about here? Because people have different ideas about what positioning is all about. It's so bad that whenever I have a conversation about positioning, I have to kind of start by saying what positioning is not. So it is not the same thing as messaging. It is not a tagline. It is not a slogan. It is not branding. Because um, I'll get a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, brand positioning. And I'm like, well, there's positioning and there's branding. And those two things are different. <laughs> <laughs> and so in my mind, all of those things flow from positioning. But positioning has to come first. So it, it, positioning in my mind defines how your product is uniquely suited to provide something that a well-defined set of buyers cares a lot about. So put another way, positioning defines who my competitive comparables are, what my differentiators are, what the differentiated value is that my product can provide, um, who my exact target market is, so what buyers am I trying to go after, uh, and then the and then the market category itself that I intend to win. So if you think about anything we go to do in marketing, like I'm going to build a marketing campaign, I'm going to create a piece of content, I'm going to build a, a, a sales strategy. The first thing that I need to know in order to do that are you know is who's my target market and what's my differentiated value and who am I competing against I, I can't start any of those things without 
first understanding that. So at a fundamental level, positioning defines the inputs to everything we do in marketing and sales, but you have to have the inputs first. And then the other scary part about that is if I get it wrong, then it potentially messes up everything that I apply it to. <laughs> so if I don't do a good job of defining my target market, my, uh, my real best fit customers, my real differentiators, then I'm, you know, if, I, if all those things are kind of wrong or I did a bad job of finding what they are, and then I use those as inputs into my marketing campaign, what's going to happen? It's going to be bad. <laughs> and so I learned this in programming, right? It's garbage in, garbage out. If the inputs are crummy, the outputs are crummy. And so this is why we have to focus on positioning first. If we do a bad job of setting positioning, then it doesn't matter how excellent our marketing and sales execution is, we are still going to have bad results. Could you spend maybe two extra minutes and uh, give us couple of great examples like the one with the cake on a stick or <laughs> which it can be repositioned as an attractive cake pop because essentially like uh when i read that, <laughs> i was like with two software products i've been trying to say cake on a stick right like, and trying to make it attractive <laughs> like that's it like you describe a cake you describe a stick but it just doesn't glue together it just doesn't glue together yeah and i'm so grateful I'm so grateful for your methods. So please give us some examples of how poor positioning can be transformed. Maybe some short stories, favorite uh, stories, examples. <laughs> sure. I have, so I have lots of them. So, you know, when I first started talking about positioning, you can talk about it at a theoretical level, but then people are still a bit confused. Like, so what do you mean by that? And um, And then I would give them examples of tech products. But the problem is, If I gave you an example of a tech product and you happen to be techie, we tend to get more focused on the tech <laughs> than the actual <laughs> abstracted example I'm trying to give. So then I started giving all of these examples that had nothing to do with tech, just so that I could take that off the table. And so one of my favorite examples, and it, it, I talk about it in the book because it's it's a good example and I use it a lot with um, in workshops with companies where... I say, so let's pretend you're not in tech and let's pretend tomorrow you wake up and you're a baker and your specialty is chocolate cake. That's your thing. You make chocolate cake, but um, you decide one day you're going to, you're going to make, you're going to innovate on chocolate cake. So you're trying to think up new product ideas. And so you go to the kitchen and you're trying out a bunch of things and you have this theory. You're like, what if I could have chocolate cake, but I'm going to make it kind of small and I'm going to make it portable. And so that way you could walk down the street and drink your coffee in one hand and have your portable cake snacky thing in the other hand. And wouldn't that be great? And so, uh, you know, you go into the, you go into the kitchen and you try a bunch of different things. And eventually you come up with this thing that, that, you know, you don't know what you're going to call it yet, But what it actually is, is like a small piece of cake and you put it on a stick uh, and it, and it's amazing. And then, and you, you give it to people and people that try it are like, I love this thing. It's fantastic. It's so cute. It's amazing. I, I love this thing that you made. And then you go to sell it <laughs> and you say, you know what? This is so great. I should call up the lady at Starbucks 
that, you know, buy snacky things and I'm going to sell this thing because it's perfect with coffee. It'll be great. So I get on the phone and I call the lady at Starbucks and I'm like, Hey, Starbucks lady, I got this thing. And, and I give and how, and this is how we normally pitch things as founders in the early days. We'll say, <laughs> Hey, I, you know, and I'll give you the whole origin story. Hey, I'm a cake baker and I'm really into chocolate cake. And I decided I wanted to solve this other problem, which is, you know, portable cake and whatever. And so I decided I was going to make the cake kind of small. And then to make it portable, I thought I'd put sort of a handle on it. And then I decided, well, a handle was no good. So I put it on a stick and then what I came up with was this amazing cake on a stick. <laughs> it's like revolutionary cake 2.0. And the problem with that positioning is I'm still describing it as cake because that's what I set out to build, fancier, newer, innovative cake. But cake on a stick just sounds bad because my purchase criteria for cake is different. Like what wins in a cake cake contest? The cakiest <laughs> cake you can think of, right? Like a bigger cake, a cake with more frosting, a cake with more decadent ingredients, a cake like portable is not a requirement for cake. And so you're telling me well, it's all, it's, everything is cool about you. It kind of falls outside of the definition of cake. So in a cake contest, you're going to lose. So instead, I could have taken the thing that I invented and, and described it to you in a, as being in a completely different market. So I could have come in and said, hey, Starbucks lady, you know what? We started with the idea of uh, a lollipop. And we decided that, you know, it would be, what if it was, if we had a lollipop for grownups that they could have with their coffee? So we took a lollipop and we made it out of cake. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, you're talking about lollipops. Of course it's got a stick and that's not weird. <laughs> of course it's portable. Of course it's round. Of course it comes with fancy colors and sprinkles and things. And I tell you, it's a lollipop made out of cake. You know exactly what it is. But if I tell you I got cake on a stick, you're like, that's weird. <laughs> I don't want cake on a <laughs> stick. That's not what I want. So as founders, we do the same thing, right? Where we say, you know, I had this original idea for a product. Like I worked at a company where um, the original idea for the product was a database and we were going to build a new kind of database. And the founders were database guys. They had data PhDs in database science. We built this thing and it was a database. But the real value and the thing that was differentiating about what it did was it could do a super, super fast query on an absolute mountain of data in a really short amount of time. It was revolutionary, in fact. Like if you had, you know, like petabytes of data, that we had a customer that had a query that was taking them 12 hours to run so they could only run it on the weekend. This product could do it in like three minutes. <laughs> it's revolutionary, amazing. But when we went to pitch it to people, we'd walk in and say, hey, we have this revolutionary new database. And our buyers were, database administrators and chief information officers. And they just look at us and go, oh, geez, we got a database. We're all certified on Oracle. We're an Oracle shop. The last thing we need is another database. And yeah, maybe your database does this one thing fine, but we need databases that do all kinds of things and not just that. And we eventually repositioned that database as a business intelligence tool. And like later we repositioned it as a data warehouse. But when we had to position it that way, because the thing that we were good at was analysis. And so if you wanted to solve an analytics problem, 
you didn't necessarily think of a database as doing that. And so we took the same product, picked it up, put it in another market where all the things that made us special and different and better made sense. And it's the same thing between cake and cake pop database versus business intelligence tool. Sometimes you have a product that, you know, you intended it to be one thing. That was the idea you started with, but you changed the features, the market itself changed, you added and removed things that, you know, meanwhile, competitors are doing different things. You fast forward a couple of years and, you know, all of a sudden your database doesn't really, it's not really a database anymore. It's a business intelligence tool. And the thing you <laughs> built, even though what you wanted to build was, you know, innovative cake, it might be better described as a muffin or a cupcake or a cake pop. I don't know if it's worth to actually recap your method here in the podcast because it's so well explained in the book and the book is so readily available. Oh, thanks. Maybe we could focus on a few moments. So it's a very clear flow, but some of the moments were just downright revolutionary. And one of those was about understanding competitive alternatives. Yes, yes. That it's not those, like, it's not your fellow software tools, most likely. Right. So, Tell us about that. In the way I do positioning, I, you know, I started with this idea, like I can break positioning up into little pieces and then I'll solve for the pieces, put it back together. And that's how we get good positioning. And, and the component pieces, the way I saw it were competitive alternatives, unique features, the value those features enable for customers a definition of who your best fit customer is. And then lastly, what market are you in or what market do you intend to win? Now, once I figured out those were the five pieces, then I was like, but wait, you need to actually figure out how to get the best answer for each of those. And there didn't seem to be a good starting point because all the pieces relate to each other. Like if I say, you know, my definition of a good fit customer depends on what my value is because my good fit customers care a lot about my value. That's how we define that. But my value is determined by my unique capabilities. Otherwise, you know, that I got value is not unique. And then my unique capabilities are defined by comparing myself to an alternative. <laughs> Otherwise it's not unique. <laughs> and so eventually I settled on the idea that the starting point for this is you really got to understand what the alternatives are to your solution. Now, where you mess this up is you confuse competitors and competitive alternatives because they're different things. <laughs> and, and so most of the startups that I work with, I'll ask them, who's your competitor? And they'll give me the, usually they give me a long list of companies that do something sort of similar to them. And they're usually also little startups. And they'll say, oh, look at all the, look at all these guys. They're all in our space. You know, they all do something like us. We're better, but and different, but you know, th these are our competitors, but that actually isn't the comparison that matters a lot of the time. So what matters is who your customers see as an alternative solution to what you do. And if you're selling to businesses, a lot of the times that competitive alternative is not another software product that's in your space. <laughs> so a lot of times if you go to the customer and you say, Hey customer, if you didn't use our stuff, what would you do? A lot of times the customer will say, uh, you know, I do it in a spreadsheet or I do it in word, or I'd hire an intern to do it, or I just manually piece together a bunch of things and I do it this way. 
The reason this matters is because if I don't understand how a customer is mentally comparing me, then I don't know what capabilities to highlight. So this is where bad positioning comes from in a lot of the cases. So the same little startup that says, oh, here's all my competitors and they're all other little startups. They'll say things to me like, well, you know what? Our big differentiator is ease of use. Because if you look at all those other little startups, look, it takes 25 clicks to do a thing. And in our, in our software, we can do it in two clicks. And, you know, ours is just so much more elegant and it runs way better on a mobile device, blah, 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 all this ease of use stuff, right? But then I go to the customer and the customer says, oh, yeah, if we didn't use that, we'd just hire an intern to do it. And you're like, well, you're never going to be easier to use <laughs> than the intern. The, inter- the intern is the easiest thing. I'm just like, Joey, get me a coffee. Fill out that thing, come back when you're done, right? Same with Excel. Everybody knows Excel. In fact, everybody knows all the shortcut keys in Excel. Like for most people, Excel is super easy to use. And so if you're doing the wrong comparison, you'll end up hiring the wrong features. You're never going to win on easy use if that's your comparable. So if I understand that the comparable is use a spreadsheet or hire an intern, then you ask yourself, okay, what are my unique capabilities? And you might say, well, you know, I, my, my stuff doesn't make any mistakes. <laughs> the intern makes a lot of mistakes. And, you know, in my thing, the data only has to be entered once instead of transcribed four times. Or, you know, in, in, in my thing has great security and role-based privileges so that if a new intern comes, they can't mess up your old data and, you know, things like this. So, you know, your unique capabilities really depend on this comparison. And you have to get that comparison right so that you can say, okay, these are actually my unique capabilities. And then I can say those capabilities translate to value for customers. And I can do that mapping, which gets me to the value. And then the next step after that is, okay, if this is my unique value, what are the characteristics of a customer that makes them really, really care a lot about that value, which gets me to my customer segmentation, which is this is what a best fit customer actually looks like because a best fit customer really, really needs the unique thing that we can provide. And then once you have all of that, then you can say, okay, I'm trying to communicate that value to those people. What is the best context for me to wrap around this thing? So, you know, coming back to my database example, like database was a lousy way to position it because my unique value was all around analytics, which is not what you buy a database to do. Like for the most part, a database is doing transaction processing and not analytics. If I wanted to solve analytics, I'd buy a business intelligence tool. So it makes way more sense to position the thing as a data warehouse or a business intelligence tool because my key value is analytics. And had we done an exercise like that in that startup, that's where we would have got to. It would have been obvious that, well, you know, our, our value looks nothing like the value of a database. Why are we positioning it that way? So that's kind of how the methodology flows. It sort of starts with alternatives, gets to key capabilities, translates that to value, uses that to determine your best fit customers. And then we step back and say, okay, how do we, what's the best context to weave around that value to make it obvious to those folks. And I think the uniqueness of your method is that like as product people, we think in features and you allow for that process to flow from the bottom up from the actual features that you can list and have something to work with. Yeah, because everybody, everybody likes to talk about features. We're all comfortable with features. 
<laughs> and it's 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 just easy to like decompose. The simplest thing you can do is to decompose your product into features because they are really like tangible things that you have. Exactly. Exactly. And then you can brainstorm up from there. And I think that's the, where the magic was. That's exactly it. Because what happens, most, the value is actually really hard, like even for marketers. And most people will start with, well, what's the value you deliver? And, and that's kind of a terrible way to start because the easiest way to start is say, what do we have that's unique capability wise features? And, you know, I never do I come across a team that can't write down like a hundred things. I mean, once we agree on what we're comparing to, they write down a hundred key, neat, unique features that their product has that the alternative does not. And then once you have that list, then you can sort of clump them. You can see, like, if you say, well, well, who cares? Like, I, I pick any given feature on that list and say, why does a customer care about that? What does that enable a customer to do for their business? What does that do? And you start writing down that, you're essentially doing the translation to value. But what happens, the magic that happens is that it, it your features then clearly break out when you do the translation into value buckets or value themes. And, and I've done dozens and dozens of these workshops now, and it almost always themes out into like two, three themes of value. And then you'll have the occasional feature that there's some value, but it, it's not a big deal. And so you can kind of just say, yeah, you know, that's, that's a minor thing and it doesn't count, but you'll end up with these main two, three buckets of value, which is really your differentiated value, but trying to do it the other way and say, what's my value. And then what are the features that support that value? Oh my God, that's hard. That's even hard for like career marketers to do. Even though like all of us are trained to start with research where you can discover pains and then you can kind of speculate on the value you can deliver. So it's supposed to be from the top to the bottom, but it, it doesn't work that easily <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, so here's a problem, right? Like, so, so we are, right. We're taught to start with that and say, what's the pain that we're solving? And even if you ask a customer, what pain are you solving? They're often really bad at articulating that. And there might, and there might be a laundry list of pains, but, but so what, right? The, the more instructional thing is, is to, again, um, think about, like, if you go and ask a customer, if you didn't, if you couldn't use this thing, what would you do? Or what were you doing before you bought this thing? That's often much more illuminating than asking them, what problem does this solve? So if you say, well, what were you doing before? They'll say, oh, well, we had a spreadsheet and we had this thing and we had this thing. And then it became this other thing. And then we modified the process to do this. And then, you know, and then one day, Joey, the intern made a mistake and it was so terrible. We lost the deal. <laughs> and then we said, that's it. We got to solve this problem, you know, and then and that's usually more instructional. The other thing that people will ask me, well, do you do user research? And, and if you're not going in doing the research, how do you know that in this positioning process, you've come to the right conclusion? And this was an interesting journey for me. So at the beginning, I thought that's what we would do. Because as a VP marketing, when I came in, I usually would go on a bunch of rides with the salespeople and listen in on a bunch of sales calls and do a bunch of calls with customers until I started to feel comfortable that I understood who the competitive comparables were, 
how people saw our value, you know, what kind of customers loved us the most, that kind of thing. And then I would attempt to do the repositioning. So I thought, okay, I'm a consultant. I'm trying to replicate that process. I will probably have to start with that. And so maybe what I'll have to do is a bunch of research on, you know, just look at the current customers or whatever. But here's what's interesting about it. The thing I was doing naturally as a vice president that you don't do if you don't know this is I was naturally filtering out good fit customers from bad fit customers in my mind. So when I said I've got a good grasp on who loves my stuff and why, I was naturally putting a heavier weight on customers that were really good fit than customers who were bad fit. So here's what happens if you don't do that. If you say, you know what, we're just going to do a survey. I'm going to do a big survey and I'm going to ask all my customers uh, if you didn't, you know, if, if, if we all got hit by a bus and our product went away, what would you use <laughs> instead? And the first time I did this survey, this is literally what happened. We did a survey like this because the CEO insisted on it. We did the survey and the results were crap. Like there was no pattern. There, there was just junk, right? And so I'm like, I've learned nothing <laughs> from this because all the customers say different things. There's no patterns here. We've learned nothing. And I took it to the CEO and we had this big spreadsheet. And I said, look, there's no pattern here. And he says, I need the names of the companies on that spreadsheet. <laughs> and I'm like, why? And he's like, because <laughs> some of them don't count. And I'm like, what do you mean they don't count? And he's like, some of them are bad customers. So we put the names down and he's like, oh yeah, Bank of Montreal. Nope, they don't count. They're, they're terrible. They're terrible. If, <laughs> you know, if we knew what we knew now, we'd have never closed that deal. They use us in a weird way. We never want another customer that looks like them. So you should never ask them anything that's going to influence further future development. Get them off of there. And what we did was we went through the whole spreadsheet. We got rid of a whole bunch of customers that were quote unquote, bad fit. And then we could see the pattern. And so what's interesting is if I get the right people in the room, like head of sales, head of marketing, head of customer success, a couple of good salespeople, the founder, if the founder is doing a lot of selling on their own, if I get those people in the room and say, we're not talking about every customer, just your best customer. And let's make a list of them. And we'll make a list of like 10 of them and say, okay, for these 10 here, what were they doing before they used your stuff? You definitely, the people in the room know this. I don't actually have to go and do that research because the people in the room know. But what I do have to do is get them in a mindset where it's like, look, I don't need every answer. I need the best answer for your best customers. And we're gonna start there because what we're trying to get to is positioning that attracts more customers like that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so generally, if the company has enough market traction, meaning they have enough happy customers out there, and I get the right people in the room, the information is collectively in people's heads. And the trick is getting it out. So that's when your, uh, your 10 step method comes that's as right. a tool. <laughs> that's right. I'm wondering how that emerged over time, was it like you've been doing a structureless series of consulting gigs and then you decided now it's time for me to sit down and like put together those steps that I can use in my further workshops down the road? Or how did it go? <laughs> so is it, it was an interesting journey. So 
the process when I first started consulting was not very good. Like I wouldn't say it was very structured. I certainly couldn't deliver it in a couple day workshop. No way. So when I first started consulting, I wasn't focused just on positioning. I was doing a lot of different work. And so every consulting engagement I did was somewhat custom. And so I would have a long conversation with the CEO. We'd have a long conversation about what problems they wanted to tackle. Sometimes that would include positioning and sometimes it wouldn't. And we would figure out a way to tackle it together. But it wasn't like April's going to come in and we're going to do this really structured workshop and we're going to get this particular positioning thing done and we're going to do it in a couple of days. So at the beginning, I was doing these more like my whole offering and everything else as a consultant was completely different. But in the process of doing that, I got more structure on the process of doing positioning to the point where I started to think I could do this in a workshop. We could do it in a couple of days and get it done. And so I tried that on a handful of clients, like for free, basically, and saying, all right, let's see if this thing works. And then I was an entrepreneur in residence at a startup incubator at the time as well, when I was perfecting this thing. And again, I taught a regular class with those folks on positioning. And so I was also using them as kind of guinea pigs for, you know, if I describe it in this way, do you understand? <laughs> like, <laughs> the first time I taught the class, everybody was in the room going, oh, that was a great session. So uh, what's positioning again? <laughs> like everyone's very entertained nobody's learned a thing so it got better and then you know I would say it's been maybe two and a half years maybe coming up on three years where the methodology is tight enough that I can actually you know assuming you meet my criteria because like I only work with B2B companies. I mainly only work with tech companies. You have to have enough traction. Like if you come and you say, oh, we've only got a handful of customers, then I usually say you just need to get more customers and then we'll tighten up the positioning. But right now, you know, don't worry about it. Keep it kind of loose until you do. But if you meet all my criteria, then I can feel pretty confident. Like, yeah, in a couple of days, we can work through this methodology in a workshop and get it done super fast and efficient and the output's going to be good. But yeah, it took me a long time to get there. Well, I can tell our listeners that we did this exercise uh, for UserList. I know you guys wrote that. You guys wrote an awesome blog post about it too. So it's it's fully decomposed, and uh, I can totally testify to the uh, magic of of this method. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna go into details, but after selling that cake on a stick for a while, like at least you get smart enough to understand that you are doing something wrong, right. <laughs> like. The signs for us were that people didn't grasp instantly what we did with that behavior-based email automation. We were compared to the wrong tools. And then after after lining out all these features and aligning them with value and with the customers, we ultimately realized what we are set out to do, which is customer messaging. And now it's not like, post-sign-up customer automated email and everybody's <laughs> like what's post and sign up what's pre-sign up like how come none of the existing tools don't even use the word post sign up right <laughs> so <laughs> yeah it's been it's been great so we're gonna link to that in the show notes and one of the other revelations for me was that absence of features can be benefit oh totally yeah totally totally that is such such an underestimated thing like we think that more and more features are better, but actually lack of that can be your vision and your philosophy. 
as an example, on the in-app messaging that we're planning, we're never going to, well, not say never, we're not planning to have the live chat because that implies like increased support load for founders and uh, a few other complications that we don't want to introduce. Therefore, lack of chat is going to be our our perk instead of being a just something that's never been built. <laughs> right, right. No, there's lots of examples of that. There are quite often in any given market, a, a leader in the market that, you know, their value is you can do absolutely everything with this. Like we have every little <laughs> feature, every drop down menu has 9,000 things on it. <laughs> you know, you can do like, if I think about um, in project management space, this is like Jira, right? Anything, everything, oh my gosh, all of it. And then, uh, and then the other end of the spectrum is the company that, that the, the, the main thing is really simplicity and elegance and speed. And yeah, it doesn't do every, every single thing, but you can do stuff really fast and it's really uncomplicated and it's elegant. And so it's Jira versus Trello, for example, and they're going after completely different markets with completely different value propositions, completely different, um, use cases, and, you know, and one is very, very feature rich. And that is the reason you buy them. And the other one is the exact opposite. And that's the reason you buy them too. I would love to focus on one more item on this agenda of your method, which is uh, three different market frames, strategies um, that you can pursue. Yeah. Positioning to win an existing market, to win a smaller segment of an existing market and creating a new market. And I would particularly love to hear a long speech on why you should not be creating new markets for everyone product people out there. <laughs> Do not. <laughs> it's really hard. Like there's people don't realize because it's it's trendy to think, particularly in Silicon Valley right now, um, people like to talk about, oh, we're creating a whole new market category. For the most part, that is actually not true. <laughs> At least it's not true when the company is small. So there's many, many examples of companies that did successfully create a new market category, but they did it after they were 100 million revenue, 200 million revenue, like, like really big, big companies. The reason creating a new market is so hard is you're basically saying there is no frame of reference, right? Like this is so new. It's so different. I, I can't use anything existing as a touch point. And the exist, comparing something to an existing market is how people figure things out. And so in the case of creating a new market, a completely new market, you first have to describe why that market deserves to exist, which means what you're really doing is selling the problem. Now, a lot of times what people think of as category creation isn't in my mind. So um, like I had a back and forth on Twitter the other day and he was talking about an example in the book and he was saying, well, you use an example of trying to dominate the cola market against Coke, which would be very, very difficult. Coke's an established market leader. Cola is an established um, market category. And, uh, and Coke for dogs, in my mind, is a sub-segment of an existing category because I'm saying Coke like it's cola. So if I say if I have cola for dogs, it conjures something in your mind. Like, you know what cola is all about. It's brown, it's fizzy, it's sweet. You know, so if I tell you it's cola for dogs, you're like, 
well, it's, it's probably like Coke, except maybe it tastes like bones, <laughs> but I can figure out what it is. Whereas if I came in and said, I have elixir for dogs, well, what's elixir? I don't, I don't know what that is. Like, and then now I gotta, and then I gotta deserve why elixir is a thing that needs to exist. And then why for dogs? And oh my God, it's so confusing. And so for most startups, the easiest way to get traction initially is you know, your product was built to solve a particular problem. There is, it's a, you know, if the problem is known, there is probably an existing category out there that it could fit in. And what you need to figure out is, you know, your best fit customers are probably sitting in a sub segment of an existing category. So, you know, if I decide I'm going to launch a CRM, uh, you know, I, I'm never going to take down Salesforce because Salesforce, well, at least not right out of the gate when I'm five people, I'm not going to be able to win against Salesforce <laughs> because it's an existing market category and there's a clear existing leader. But if I come in and say, you know what, I'm CRM for lawyers or I'm CRM for investment banks or I'm CRM for accountants. Well, if I have some features that make it really, really well suited for that market. And Salesforce is underserving that market. And I can prove to you like, hey, there's a reason why you should buy this and not them. And yeah, I know they're the market leader, but uh, we do this thing better for you. You can actually win in your little patch. And then the key is to just keep expanding it and expanding it and expanding it. So in the book, I talk about three different styles of positioning. One is you know, this create a new category, which is very difficult. It takes a long time. You need to have patient investors. Um, then there's this big fish, small pond, which is, you know, I'm just going to, I'm not going to dominate a whole existing market. I'm just going to try to dominate a piece of it. And then the last one is this head to head where I'm going into a market that already exists and I'm attempting to dominate the whole thing, which again, it, it's very difficult to do if there's an established market leader, but sometimes you've got emerging categories. Like I would say right now we might, that might be the situation with markets like, um, smart glasses, for example, if I say we're in the smart glasses market, you kind of know what smart glasses are all about, but you don't really know who the leader is in the, of that market is. So a smart, well-funded, fast moving company, maybe, you know, and we have one here in Canada called North. I mean, they, they took all those boxes and they're making a real run at being the leader in the overall smart glasses category. The vast majority of startups that are successful in their early days start off doing this big fish, small pond thing where they're solving a problem for a very specific set of customers in a fairly well-defined problem space. Doing anything else is Again, it takes time, money, patient investors. <laughs> it's not that it's impossible. And, you know, I, I, I give one example in the book, I think of, of Eloqua, which did a kind of interesting job of that. And I know Mark Organ, the founder from that, and he's got a great story about how he did it. But those stories are extremely rare. And there's lots of cases where there, you know, an attempt was made to do that and the attempt was not successful. Right. And with the smart glasses, we should be all grateful to Google Glass, which were not successful, but did pave uh, the road for 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 the whole thing. Right. But they didn't succeed. Exactly. <laughs> like I would say, I would say, right. I would say Google Glass is a great example of a company that tried to come out, create a market category 
and they were successful in in creating a category in the mind of customers, but they were unsuccessful in creating any demand or convincing people that you know there was a real problem to be solved there. Um, and then plus lots of other problems. But you're right. Like, had they not done that big push in a big way, they did sort of pave the way for there to be a specialized market there. Um, which, you know, eventually I have no doubt we'll all be wearing all kinds of weird wearables that things we don't even know now, but you're right. <laughs> like without Google glass, there would be no smart glasses market today. One of our guests at the podcast, Alex of Jitbit, um, when asked for entrepreneurial advice on this podcast, he was like, yeah, just go out and build another help desk, you know, and he runs a help desk yeah. business. Because we all know what help desks do. There is an established need for that. There is an established meaning for that. Exactly. Competitors who frame you, it's always great. And it's not absolutely not obvious to a lot of beginners out there and can save you like few years of work, really. Well, this is it. That The key is where are you going to win? Like as long as you can define a subset of customers in an existing market where you can win over the market leader, you're good. And, and, and at the beginning, it doesn't even have to be a big subset. But what you, what you can't do is go in and say, oh, we're better than Salesforce for everybody. No, you're not, <laughs> like, no, you're just not going to win that. But if you say, you know what, we're better than Salesforce if you're small, if you're a franchisee, if you're, you know, there's a thousand markets that are underserved for CRM right now, like a thousand markets where there are going to be loads and loads of fine companies that get started. And then when they get bigger, you know, maybe they pivot out or expand out of the CRM business. Maybe they, maybe they get big enough to eventually challenge Salesforce. And there's a few right now that I think are on their path to do that. April, thank you so much for uh, sharing your insights today. And I hope everyone will just go out and grab your book. Uh, in addition Me to too. that, where can, people, <laughs> where can people find you and your work online so they can learn more? I have a website. It's aprildunford.com. And, um, uh -huh. and uh, you know, I'm a very occasional blogger on there. But now that I've finished writing this book, I've, I have great plans to go back to writing regularly on my own site. I'm also like, I'm not very active on a lot of social networks, but I'm fairly active on Twitter. So I'm at April Dunford on Twitter. You can follow me there. And I'm doing a lot of public speaking between now and the end of the year. So um, you can probably see me on stage somewhere at a marketing conference or an entrepreneur's conference or a product management conference coming to your town <laughs> sometime between now and the, and the end of the year. I'm on a lot of stages, so you can see me there too. Another final question to polish off today's conversation. What are your next plans after you're done with the book? So I've been really heads down promoting the book and then... I have, a, I have a few things that I'm kind of thinking about, but I don't have concrete plans. I really need to do an audio version of the book because a lot of people have asked me for it. And there's some folks that just don't like reading or they don't want to read or the audiobook is a preferred format. So I'm going to do that when I get a little bit of downtime. And then I've had a lot of requests for additional resources. So with the book, I have some templates that I made available to folks. Um, you know, if you drop me an email, I can send you the templates that go with it. But I'm kind of thinking about having an online course that's, you know, not too expensive, that would be like a companion to the book. But these are more kind of ideas until I get off the road 
in November. Well, good luck with that. And thanks again for joining us today. It was amazing. Good luck, everyone, with uh, their new positioning. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful day, April. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was great. <laughs>